This is the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. We know this is a challenging time for entrepreneurs, and your business may be completely upended by this pandemic. And FreshBooks and I will be here for you as a resource and a community to help you stay connected. Look out for additional minisodes dropping over the coming weeks to help you adjust to the new normal and handle the unique challenges that we all are facing during this time. You can also find me, as well as other entrepreneurs and FreshBooks customers, sharing our stories on the Facebook community page for I Make a Living. That's at facebook.com slash I Make a Living. In the meantime, as they say, the show must go on. This is the I Make a Living podcast, brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, an entrepreneur who knows cash is king. With the help of two powerhouse entrepreneurs, we're taking a deeper look into both sides of startup financing. Our guests for today, Janine Wright and Fatima Zaidi, are both leaders in the field of podcasting. They see the value of podcasts as a marketing tool and have developed companies who support podcasters and brands in amplifying their message. Here's Janine Wright, the COO of Simplecast. Simplecast is a podcast technologies company, so we are like... Wix or Squarespace is to websites, we are to podcasts. So if somebody wants to make a podcast, they come to us and we help them get that podcast out into the world. So hosting, distribution, we have a number of different growth tools that people really like. We're probably best known in the space for our analytics. Some people call us like the Google Analytics of podcasting and um, and some dynamic audio technology that makes it so that people can do um, ad sales and a lot of really other creative things with their audio and podcasts. Simplecast is actually the platform that is bringing this very podcast to your ears right now. Speaking of creative things with audio and podcasts, Fatima sought to fill a different slot in this space by launching Quill, a freelancer's marketplace. It's like Fiverr or Upwork, but specifically to connect podcasters with professional services to round out their teams. So the last four years, I've been heading up sales at an agency called 88. And essentially, I saw a huge demand for podcasting, creating your own content, branded content as a company, as a way to either um, put out really good content or reach a new category of people, which is generally affluent, educated millennial professionals who account for 75% of the workforce now. Um, And if they weren't looking to start their own content through podcasting, they were looking to start marketing heavily on podcasting and advertising on podcasts. So I, you know, essentially started trying to find resources to connect our clients with um, freelancers who could help them execute on podcasters. And there is no central repository that you could go to. So I was, you know, reaching out to an audio editor here, a transcriber there, someone to help write scripts, someone to, you know, help do show notes. And so it was a bit of everything in different places and no one was pre-vetted. You didn't know if someone had industry experience. Uh, so essentially I had been doing this for four years and I decided to productize it. I essentially created a competitor for ourselves. So anyone in the future, uh, whether you're an enterprise client, 
client looking to start a podcast or you're an indie podcaster just looking to uh, start a hobby or a passion project, if you don't know how to start or where to start, or if you have a show and you want to outsource elements of it, you can just go to this one-stop shop marketplace and get connected with pre-vetted expert freelancers who can provide you those services um, at a tenth of the cost that agencies are charging. You said a moment ago that millennials make up 75% of Yeah, I think it's something like 70 to 75% of the workforce by the end of this year. Wow. Is that because so many, because just the workforce is aging or is it because people are leaving the workforce? Do we know why? I think, I think it's probably a bit of both. I think people are reaching that retirement age and, um, you know, because we account for such a large part of this demographic, a lot of brands are now looking to market to this audience. You can't ignore them anymore. And, you know, those companies like Warby Parker, HelloFresh, Square, Andy Mattresses, they're moving heavily into podcast advertising because I believe it was Midroll that just put out a study saying that out of everyone they studied, 60% of the audience said that they had purchased a product or service after listening to a podcast. So that that's a conversion rates as high as 60%, which is pretty astounding because traditional advertising converts at 1% to 2%. So brands who are understanding this early and understanding the power of conversion rates with podcast advertising are the ones who are really, you know, getting it. They're first to market and they're moving and pumping hundreds and thousands of dollars into the space because they're realizing that there's huge acquisition play. Well, and it's also the difference between broadcasting, which is my background, I come from working at CBS and NBC and these big companies where it's one ad that goes to everyone to now niche marketing and and micro-targeting a very specific audience. Um, you've worked in in marketing as well. Talk to me a little bit about what brought you here and your experience working with marketing in the millennial market. Yeah, so great, great question. I mean, I think for for millennials, there is there's like sort of a the, the industry is very saturated with the amount of ads that you get targeted with, and there's almost a very inauthentic feel, and that's why podcast advertising has such a high conversion rate. The nature of the industry is very intimate; you become very close to your hosts. Um, you trust their product recommendations, and they're essentially some of the most powerful forms of influencers that you can think of because these podcast communities are small, they're niche, and you essentially are attracting like-minded individuals. And so I think that is why it's so powerful and why the conversion rates are so high. It's the intimacy of how you're connecting with your host and your listeners. Fatima has been thinking about these kind of questions for a long time. In 2016, she was named one of Marketing Magazine's top 30 under 30 marketing and brand developers. But she has said before that her success is not a fluke. You have helped a lot of companies grow and scale their business. You have a new company right now. What are some of the common mistakes that you've seen that you're hoping to avoid in your own business? Uh, The first would be the amount of money that people and entrepreneurs pump into development. It's pretty astounding, especially when you haven't 
uh, tested market reaction yet, and you haven't seen what the traction is going to be like when you go live. So, uh, you know, there's so many companies that I've worked with, consulted with, talked to, they'll spend half a million dollars or $300,000 on developing a product and service, but they've spent not even close to that number on market research and validifying whether or not there is a market for what you're trying to provide and talking to your customers. Uh, When I did my pre-seed round last summer, I spent 50% of that revenue on market research. And I probably spent a quarter, not even a quarter of it on development. I built my marketplace very cheap, very lean. Um, And the reason I did that was I I want to go to live to market and test the traction and see, is there a demand for this product or service? Am I actually solving a problem? Uh, You know, are we actually going to have recurring MRR before I pump half a million dollars into doing a custom build from the ground up? I'm going to get really granular here because when you're talking about market research, are you talking about, are you paying a company to do the research? Are you putting money into, say, social media marketing? How are you doing this research? Yeah, so I, that's exactly it. We we paid um, freelancers and companies to do market research for us. So go out there, talk to our customers, talk to podcasters, do focus groups, send surveys out, do an omnibus survey channel where they populate and survey, you know, all Canadians on podcasts, really dissecting that data down. What are the challenges? Um, how can we support you? What would you pay for? How much would you pay? There's so many different data points that you need to collect to figure out what the optimal product or services that you're going to provide. And that market research, I mean, I still feel like we didn't do enough. We spent a year doing market research and pretty much spent most of our money on it. And I still feel like I wish we could continue doing it because that research and data is data. You know, people say cash flow is king and it is, but data is actually king. And so I find not nearly enough entrepreneurs spend the time, money, and resources on doing market research and market validation and instead pump that money into developing a custom product and their MVPs are so fancy when it's like, just go to market with something basic and, and organically grow it. And if you see the market is responding, then pump resources and dollars into doing a custom build from the ground up. So that sounds like one of the first steps you want to take if you have an idea for a business. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other beginning steps or planning steps that you should take before you launch a business or as you're at the beginning, trying to scale your business? Mm -hmm. So obviously market research is like the the first thing that you should focus your energy and efforts on. The second thing, and this is actually not necessarily related to scaling, but I think it actually is really powerful, is having a strong brand. Um, You know, there's so many entrepreneurs I talk to that will pay $500 to get a logo or go on to Logo Joy and pick one of those templated logos and have no brand positioning, have no messaging, have no positioning on how they want to market their brand. And that I think is extremely important. Having a really strong brand from the get-go, it sets the tone for how people and like the audience is going to perceive you. So what you're saying is the brand is not the logo. The brand is not the website. What is the brand? The brand is a part of it is the visual elements of, of the, of the, of the company. So of course the logo and the website and not taking shortcuts with that is important, but the brand is also your positioning, your messaging. What are your mission, vision values? Um, you know, what wording are you going to use to, to relate to your customers, Um, Do you want to invest in PR? What kind of brand do you want to be seen as? Uh, Figuring out all of those key um, 
distinguishing marketing elements early on is really important because people will take you a lot more seriously when you have those elements in play. Uh, whenever I'm looking at new companies and I go onto their website and they have a, a really tacky logo or they they don't necessarily have brand guidelines or, or a brand book, there's no cohesiveness in their UX, UI and their, and their colors and their templates and their messaging is all over the place. It's just really hard for me to take them seriously no matter how great the product or service is. So having a really strong brand from the get-go gives you legit and it gives you credibility right off the bat. As Fatima said, many companies are turning to podcasting as a branding and marketing tool. So why doesn't every startup or corporation have one? Well, I can tell you from firsthand experience, a podcast is a lot more work than it seems. Many business owners now see the growth of podcasting and think, well, that would be a good marketing tool. Mm. I should be a podcaster. What are some of the things that um, people miss in that process that that they should know before they begin this journey of starting a podcast? People don't spend enough time thinking about what audience it is they're trying to reach and how they're going to reach them. And a lot of people will just start recording audio that's almost like not consistent enough along a message or a theme and they have a really tough time resonating with an audience out the gate and then they get very discouraged and feel like well podcasting isn't working for me or you know I don't know if I believe in this medium so we we really recommend that people spend a good amount of time thinking about what it is that they're trying to say like what what is the story arc even if it's not a story that you're telling but what is what is the purpose of what it is that you're trying to do and what kind of information are you trying to convey and what's the value that people are going to get out of that um, to figure out like who is the persona that you're trying to reach and then start to simultaneously build out the plan of how it is that you're going to reach that person and people like that person. Because, I mean, I'm sure you have realized how much work goes in to the podcast after you've recorded it. Even if the podcast audio itself is beautiful and everything that was said is brilliant, there's still that, how am I going to get people to find it and listen to it? That is, yeah, that is the challenge because people think of podcasts as a marketing tool, but forget that podcasts themselves need to be marketed. It's not, it's not an organic discovery. It's, it's, it's another, it's essentially another product or service that you are delivering, right? So um, it's almost a, a backwards way of thinking about it. So I always say like, don't start a podcast unless you really want to be doing a podcast, not because you're just looking for a way to to reach more customers. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Even though a podcast can be done by a single person, most podcasts, like most companies, are collaborative efforts. And you're the co-founder, which means there's another co-founder. How did you create that partnership and collaboration? My business partner, Jay Roberts, he's actually at United Airlines in Chicago. So he his full-time job is United Airlines. Um, and he finished his MBA at Cornell this year. And uh, he started working on the side with me. But I think eventually the goal is for him to move into this role full-time as well. Uh, we've known each other for a decade. We went to university together. And he just had a very complementary skill set. He His background is ops and finance, whereas my background is um 
scaling startups and sales. And so it just seemed like a really natural natural fit. And we've worked together before. So that's, he was the only person that I ever wanted to go into business with. And I don't, if he wasn't in the picture, I'd probably do this alone. How do you know if you should bring in a partner or not? I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that are like, well, I could do this on my own, but maybe they recognize there are certain holes in their skill set. Yeah, this is, it's really hard. This is a really hard process. This is a really difficult journey. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress. Um, and so do, I can't even fathom doing this on my own. I, I look at other solopreneurs and often think about, well, aside from the workload distribution, how, you know, it's almost therapy having a founder. It's someone who's in the trenches with you, who understands the sleepless nights, who understands the pain points, the challenges, the the financial issues, the burden, and is with you every step of the way. And, you know, I'm not even thinking about the workload distribution and having someone to take things off of your plate, but I think of it more from a therapy standpoint. How do you not have that person that you can go to at the end of the day that shares that burden with you? And so, you know, if you, my biggest piece of advice would be bring on, bring, bring on a co-founder if you can. And, you know, I think the most important thing with a co-founder is you need to be able to trust them. Mm. But you have to, you're giving something up by having a co-founder. How do you figure out what's fair when, when right now you're talking about basically an idea at the beginning, how do you figure out what you're bringing to the table and what that's worth versus the other person? Yeah. So that definitely was like a, a conversation or two. I think for us, it was pretty easy to figure out because um, Quill was my idea. I'm on this full time. I I took that leap and sacrifice and, and moved into it full time without an income. I'm not paying myself. So it was um, a bigger sacrifice and risk on my end going into this full time. And so, of course, I'm majority shareholder. But at the end of the day, I think you need to just figure out what works best for you. If you have two co-founders bringing, you know, the same amount of skill sets to the table and bringing the same amount of capital to the table, then maybe you split it 50-50. But I think there's a few different things that you have to look at the barometers. How much capital are you putting into the business? What is the workload distribution? And um, could this be done without them? Janine had a different route into partnership. As an angel investor, she had to bet on the right horse. They say the biggest predictor of someone's future success is their past performance. So when Janine was looking for a sound investment, she turned to someone who had delivered for her before. I am actually really good friends with the founder, Brad Smith. I was the general counsel of a company called Media Temple, and we had purchased um, Brad's last company and were incubating that company. I actually co-led the process to sell uh, Media Temple to GoDaddy, and Brad's company sold as part of that transaction. And after that, I just knew that Brad was going to come up with some great next thing. You know, he's one of those very few people in the world that kind of can see something before it's cool. Like his Twitter handle is at Brad and, you know, his Instagram handle is at Brad. Like he just, he knows the next tech thing that's going to be awesome. After the Media Temple sale, I was very lucky to have made a, a little bit of money in that sale transaction. And my husband and I decided to set that money aside and um, and to look at investing in startup. And Brad knew that I was investing. And so he, he came to me when he had his next great idea. And he said, 
I think podcasting is going to be a thing. <laughs> and I think the creator tools for podcasters really suck. And I think I know how to fix it. And this was maybe five years ago or something. And, um, and I said, cool, I listen to podcasts. Um, <laughs> and you know what you're talking about. So, um, so I actually wrote Simplecast their first check. It was a very small check, but, you know, first money in nonetheless. Uh, and so uh, I'm a lawyer by background, and uh, and then I helped Simplecast with all the, like, corporate formation work that needed to be done and the early intellectual property, like trademarks and things like that. And then I actually helped raise the... Um, the early safe financing round and then the seed financing round. And then I helped with the series A and I said to him like, Oh, you know, if you raise a series A, like I'll quit my job and come be your COO. And the next thing I know <laughs> he had raised a series A and I was leaving a stable, well-paying job to join a startup company. <laughs> it sounds crazy at the time, but it seems to have paid off. Yeah. You said you wrote that first check to Simplecast. For the people that are at that point of trying to get that first check, what do you think are the most important things for them to invest in? What did you decide to put that money towards in the launch of Simplecast? I mean, well, I have my own kind of investment criteria where it's like I have these three pillars that my husband and I talk about are three pillars for investing. We really um, look at at a founder first and foremost, like, do we believe in this person even more than do we believe in their vision or their product? Because when you're investing very, very early and certainly like early money in, a lot of times like it's just like a, the product isn't even real yet. The market might not even be real yet. And really you're investing in someone that you think is going to make something happen no matter what. Like they're that tenacious, they're that creative, they're that um, dedicated to making it happen. Like they're that trustworthy, all of those things. So it's really for me, the core is about who it is that I'm investing in um, much, much more so than the product or the idea or the market or something like that. The second thing for me is I really have to know and understand the space. Um, so I've been pitched a lot of things now. I mean, as soon as you put that you're an angel investor or people start to know that you're an investor in the community, you'll get reached out to by a, a lot of people who are looking for you to fund their startup. Um, and, and and some of them I have, I have invested in companies that I've been contacted by just totally out of the blue where I haven't had a previous relationship with the founder. Um, that's certainly rarer for me, but it, it does happen. But I do need to know and understand the space. Like there was a guy who pitched to me a while ago and it was um, an idea about some way that he was going to make metal lighter for spaceships and space satellites. And he's probably a genius and it's probably going to be a really fantastic idea that's going to make a ton of money. But there was no way that I was going to be in a position to be able to vet it, vet it or yeah. evaluate whether that's real or or know the market or, you know, like I, I just didn't know anything about that. So it can't be so foreign to me that... Um, that I can't um, like risk just going blindly into that space. And then the last one, my husband and I, my husband's in banking. And so he has a strong finance background and I have the legal background. And so we really have to think that there's something unique that we're bringing to the table that's going to help this company succeed. Like they have 
legal needs or they have financing needs or they, you know, like they're, they're, we, the two of us coming on board with our money, it's not just about bringing our money to the table, but bringing our skills to the table and helping to accelerate this company to be more successful. Um, I want to break down, um, one of those avenues, because I, I find that a lot of people like don't even know where to go to get this, to get this funding. And you said sometimes people just reach out to you. Yeah. Like cold email, cold call, cold LinkedIn. Wh- uh, what is it that would make you, aside from you being able to connect to it, they wouldn't necessarily know that, right? Or is there a way that people should be researching before they reach out to angel investors so that the the message gets heard and really considered. Yeah, I definitely, I get messages that kind of come in across the board. The most common way I think is that people reach out to me via LinkedIn, LinkedIn or um, at some of the events that I go to. Like if I go to um, an expert dojo event or like a... Um, you know, a big startup forum. Sometimes I'll go and just walk the floor and talk to people. Um, I also now I think because I've been doing it for a while and people know that I do it, you know, I'll get referrals from people who know people and they'll just, you know, send somebody over like, oh, this might be something that Janine is interested in. Um, And I actually now have a number of other people who are in my network that look to me to invest alongside me. Like, oh, this is interesting. Janine's doing this, whether they're lawyers or in finance. And so um, so sometimes I even will put together a little group of folks and, um, and have somebody come and do a pitch. Like even in my backyard, I'll have a barbecue and it's like, <laughs> this is this really fantastic, interesting entrepreneur that I met and they have this cool idea and... Let's hear what they have to say and let's vet it. So what has to go in that pitch for it to be a success? You know, they really have to, I think, like I said, first and foremost, convince me and convince the other people who are there, if there are other people there, that they are the kind of person that is going to take this thing through to the end, that they believe in this thing strongly enough, that they're dedicated to this, that if they need to pivot, if they need to... Um, adjust, like they're going to be nimble and creative enough to be able to do that, um, that this is really thoroughly baked and they've they've thought this through and they have the answers to the tough questions. Um, you know, they understand how this product is going to go to market and how they're going to make money doing it. Um, I've actually seen a lot of pitches that are really, um, they're like nonprofits or um causes almost, but the person who's pitching it doesn't realize that. Um, and they they understand that there's a problem that they want to solve, but don't understand that there's no business model behind it. And that's a different uh, different monetization route that they need to be on. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So going back to the original question of you have that money in hand, what are some of the things that they need to be putting that towards Mm. in the beginning phase? Because I imagine a lot of people invest in the wrong things Mm -hmm. and then end up further down the line, like without the money, wishing they had allocated it differently, Mm -hmm. say in a tech startup. Yeah. So in in tech, usually it's it's the resources to actually get the product to market. So it is... um, 
usually, you know, and even in simple cast case, I mean, Brad, you know, sold everything and moved out of the city and moved up to a small apartment in upstate New York and took all of the money that he had and that I had uh, had given and that a few other people that we could find had given um, and hire, we hired some engineers and, you know, we just build out the product and get the product to market as soon as possible and start proving that you actually have something viable and that a customer is willing to buy and willing to pay for. Um, and then being able to get some of those numbers in so that you can build on that momentum by attracting other investors if you continue to need capital and continuing to invest in your product. One of the things that most excited me about this episode was being able to hear from women on both sides of the investing dynamic. While Janine is thinking about which companies to give money to, Fatima is thinking about how to get financing from investors. One of the biggest challenges, you know, raising capital can be hard for anyone, but it's especially hard when you're a woman. Um, the investment pool here is is pretty small and check sizes here are a lot smaller. And, you know, podcasting is a new category. I think with Canadian investors, the conversations are always, well, which companies have done this already and how have they been successful and how are we going to get our dollars back? Whereas I think American investors are a lot more willing to take risks and they, you know, the check sizes are larger. So there's, you know, my business partner is American. So the constant battle and question back and forth is, well, should we offshore and and incorporate in Delaware, incorporate in the U.S. and become an American company? Should I move offshore? Um, you know, because right now we're only talking to U.S. investors. Our conference is going to be in L.A. Our sponsors are all American. Our customers are all American. So at what point do we say, well, uh, we're not getting much here, so we should be offshoring the business. Um, I read an article that you you wrote just about the difference in acquiring funding between men and women and the questions that you get asked versus a question that a man might be asked when he's pitching for funding. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you've encountered and what you hope to see change in that space? Definitely. I think there's a few different things that we like to tackle here with in the funding landscape. I think you know, the average deal size last year was for female-led companies was $5 million, and the average deal size for male-led companies was $12 million. So more than double. We're looking at a more than double stat here. And, you know, before I got involved in raising capital, for me, I heard about all of these, you know, hidden biases, maternal wall bias that women face, um, but I never really had experienced it for myself. Um I think my previous mentors and bosses and CEOs have probably shielded me from that part of uh, of scaling a company, and it's also a very important part. Um, and it's been interesting. I know a lot of people have been really supportive, and but oftentimes I feel like the questions that I get asked may be very different from the questions my male business partner gets asked. And I think the number one thing that people want to know is, are you committed to this full time? Are you looking to have children? What are your personal goals in the long run? And while I've never been directly asked, are you going to have kids? I think in a roundabout way, uh, like investors want to know, you know, is this something that you're fully committed to? Uh, another big question that we get asked a lot is why I own 80% of the company and he only owns 20, um, which I feel like if the question was the other way around, uh, we probably wouldn't be asked that question because it's not unheard of for uh, male-led companies to be owned majority shareholders while their co-founders founders may own less. Um, it's about the work distribution. But in our case, we always get asked, you know, how is it that you are the majority shareholder? 
Um, what about uh, projections as they're looking at, like, how do you determine if the business is going to be successful and different questions that you might get asked versus if a man was pitching? Yeah, they always want to know. They always want to know, you know, what are you, what skills are you bringing to the table? What are, you know, financial modeling, whether it's like, what is your background? What expertise and area of credentials do you have? I would say in, in the, when, when it comes to projections, projections, we've generally both been asked um, similar questions because my background is in sales. And so they want to know, okay, well, what metrics are we working with? You know, what kind of sales quotas have you hit in the past? Um, but generally, I, I feel like I, I definitely do have to work a little bit harder to secure that funding and capital. Mm-hmm. But you've done it. I did a pre-seed round last summer, yes, and now we're actually toying around with do we close another seed round or should I bootstrap the business? There's a lot of government resources here, some of the perks of being Canadian and staying in Canada. There's Shred, there's IRAP, there's OCE grants. I, we just closed Futurepreneur, uh, the Futurepreneur loan, um, Export Canada, Export Development Canada provides a lot of resources and loans. And so there are a lot of grants that we can tap into and potentially bootstrap. And so we're, we're debating whether we want to continue raising capital or whether or not we want to just continue to bootstrap. What are some of the downsides for some of the new entrepreneurs who may be thinking, well, I need to get capital. I need to raise funding. Uh, it's, it's, it can be a double-edged sword, can't it? Definitely. You know, I think we've set the precedent that you need to raise money in order to be a successful tech company. And I think that's because we do so much profiling and championing of all the companies that close funding rounds, thanks to the media. But we never really talk about the companies that managed to bootstrap from day one and grow the companies on their own terms. Those are the stories I want to be hearing. And those are the companies we should also be profiling because I think that's really powerful. My favorite, one of my favorite IPO exit stories is Plenty of Fish. Uh, by the time they exited, the founder owned 99% of this company. And, you know, if you can afford to tap into government grants and resources and bootstrap from day one without giving away a whole chunk of your equity, that's that is the way to go. And, you know, when you raise capital, you have to continue raising capital and you're not doing it on your own terms. You're not, you know, you're, you're essentially, you have a boss and you, you have to be accountable to a whole lot of, a, a lot more people. And so I, I always, you know, think about it and there's no right or wrong answer here. I think it's, does your business need a large influx of cash to accelerate growth from day one? And if the answer is yes, then yes, you should be raising capital. But if you can afford to bootstrap, then that is 100% the way to go. Speaking of raising capital, we need to talk about how you're getting paid today. Getting financing is not the only arena that creates challenges for women in tech. More on that in a moment. Collecting money can be tough for small business owners like us. And sometimes, no matter what, you end up chasing down late invoice payments. There's no magic solution. But letting clients pay their preferred way certainly helps. When it comes to payments, I can't say enough about FreshBooks. Its accounting software automates your invoicing, payments, and then follows up on unpaid invoices for you. Seriously, invoices that I used to procrastinate on sending now take minutes to create and send. Automating your billing cycle gets you paid twice as fast and allows you to just sit back and collect payments. Start a free 30-day trial, no credit card required, 
Just go to freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L to take advantage of this offer exclusively for our podcast listeners. That's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Were there moments where you felt like if you were not a woman, that things would have played out differently or that your career path may have played out differently? Oh, totally. And I think it's, but it goes both ways. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that some of the opportunities that I've gotten, I have gotten because I am a woman, right? Because they know that, I mean, for example, Media Temple was hardcore internet infrastructure. So tech, tech. Um, and they had 220 employees and 15 women. And through no fault of their own, it's um, actively trying to hire women to come join the team and finding it very difficult to recruit women who were who were interested and, and had the right background to do the kind of, you know, um, hardcore internet infrastructure work and even customer support that needed to be done. And so I think that one of the reasons why I got that job is because when they wanted to hire another executive to the team, they really wanted to find uh, a woman executive leader that could help them figure out what it was about their culture that needed to be different, you know, how they could change their hiring processes. I was the first person to have a baby at that company. Um, so I drafted my own maternity leave wow. <laughs> policy. What was that like for you? Did you, you can't, ended up coming back to the company after drafting your own maternity leave um, policy? It was, it was a very unique experience. I was actually in the middle of selling the company to GoDaddy and I was co-leading the process to sell the company. And, um, and I was very pregnant. And <laughs> and uh, I remember I had uh, my second on a Tuesday. And I think I started coming into executive committee meetings the following Tuesday. And it was just, oh. it was, and it's, it's not. Was that because you were expected to be there or because you felt like you felt like you needed to be there in return after a, I mean, I <laughs> dropping guess, a baby off a week earlier. I mean, it was all of that. Like you think that here are these entrepreneurs that had this company for 15 years and they had trusted me to be the one leading the sale process of the company. It's not like somebody could have just come in and, and stepped into my shoes. Um, and I wanted to do it. I mean, here I had carried... I, I had carried this baby and I had carried this company all the way through this long sales process. And here we were at the finish line. Um, and I didn't want to hand it over even if I could have. And I, it was just one of those times when you're just going to have to figure it out, you know, like how, where your, your work and your life all meld together. Um, and so I was very candid with them. I was like, you know, the only way that I'm going to be able to do this is if I have my baby with me. And so I hired a teenager in the neighborhood who was getting ready to go to college. Um, and we I brought in my swing and my crib and we turned my office into a nursery and she came to work with me every day. And so I just, I brought my baby to work and I breastfed in meetings and we got Media Temple onesies that we threw on him. <laughs> and um, so we spent our first... Um, 
So he spent his the first three months of his life in the office with me. And then after we closed the Media Temple deal, they gave me a belated maternity leave. So I took I took the maternity leave after we had sold the deal. And it was it was actually really great because at that point, um, I wasn't so sleep deprived and he was older and we were on a better schedule. And um, anyway, I just so I really loved that beautiful time that I got with him like a little bit later in life, in his life. Um, because like the first three months after you have a baby kind of suck. And, <laughs> <laughs> they suck and it if gets, you're at home, they it suck gets if you're a, in the yeah, office. No matter where you are, you know, and it, it gets it gets better with time. And so, you know, it was it was really hard to figure it out, but we figured it out and it worked. And here you sit again, <laughs> very pregnant. Yes, very pregnant. But in a very different position at a tech startup and in a different role. Yeah. How do you see this working differently this time around? Hmm. Or do you see it working differently? Yeah, I'm not sure I do see it working differently. Um, so I feel like I learned a lot from the last experience. Um, but it's this, it's very similar in that it's not like there's somebody who could come in and fill my shoes. Um so we will have to find a way to manage it. I mean, luckily, my my husband has a very stable, traditional kind of job, and and he um, now has a generous paternity leave policy, and so he's going to be taking some time off to help us. But so modern, yes, I love very it. very modern, yeah. But um, but I also I think one of the things that I really love about my job um, is that I can always be working and I can always be not working. Um, it's very flexible in that I can work from anywhere. I can work at any time and it makes it so that I'm able to take my kids to school, to go to the winter holiday concert that's scheduled for tomorrow at one o'clock in the middle of the day. You know, you have nothing else to do, but go to a kid's concert. Exactly. You know, so, um, it's funny because my mother-in-law, for her, that's so foreign to her that she feels she she makes comments about how I'm always working and isn't it so sad that I'm always working? And I look at it as what's well, so wonderful that I can always be working and that I can be here and I can work on my phone or I can work on my computer or I can work in the car. Um, but then I can also, you know, I'm I take my kids to all of their appointments and I'm at all their sporting events and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm able to be anywhere at any time. And my husband has this very traditional job where he has to be in the office for certain hours every day. And, you know, he can't get off early to go take my oldest to his orthodontist appointment or, you know, but when he gets home at the end of the day, he is done, done, right? And he doesn't work on the weekends unless something crazy happens, right? So he has his, so his work is very regimented in terms of office hours and FaceTime. Um, and it makes it, I think, less flexible. Um, and mine is kind of always on 24 seven. Um, you know, first thing I do in the morning is you know, catch up on the emails that came in and, you know, but it's, you it's make integrated. It mm-hmm. Yeah, it's integrated. I I find a lot of entrepreneurs forget that they are the ones making that 
schedule making that reality for themselves. Like I remember talking to another person in the podcasting business who was saying she's working with companies that are in different time zones. And so she's getting requests at like three in the morning and she's totally burned out because she's like, how do you handle this three in the morning phone calls and, and servicing these clients that are, have different timelines and different expectations. And I'm like, uh, you service them by telling you that your office hours begin at a normal time, that you're not available at, at 3 a.m. And I find a lot of times entrepreneurs forget that they do set the rules of, of their business. And, you know, maybe it might mean not uh, not being available for certain clients and it not being a fit, but you have to take care of yourself. I relate to so much of what Janine just said. It's hard to explain the entrepreneur lifestyle to people who are only familiar with the nine-to-five way of living. Like, does your mom call you in the middle of the day, questioning how you could possibly be working if you're at home, or wondering why you're on the computer on a Saturday? Or is that just me? Okay, just me? Maybe I need an exit strategy. Let's say you've done everything right. You have you have strong marketing. You've done your market research. You've launched. You're successful. You're growing. When do you know when it's time to exit a company? You know, I think it depends on what your goals are. Are you looking to take a large sum of cash and go retire in the Bahamas somewhere? Like, what are you motivated by? I mean, it sounds nice but yeah, definitely. <laughs> if you're offering, but <laughs> yeah, people go into it for different reasons. Exactly. You know, people go into it for different reasons. My business partner and I have very different goals. One of us would like to retire with early with a lot of money and go relax. And the other person would like to uh, potentially keep on working and and, you know, keep growing the brand, whether it's Quill's brand or their own brand. You're going to make me guess which one is which. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's. Are are you the latter? You want to keep, keep growing and work on Quill's brand. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I'm fueled by work. Your business partner, he's been working for United. He's been in the corporate trenches for a while and he's, he's looking at this as a, as a financial growth opportunity. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. For him, it's the financial return opportunity, which is great. Like as long as you know what your goals are, I think that's important. uh, Knowing where you want to end up. What do you feel that you're sacrificing right now to get Quill off the ground? Well, for starters, I would say a lot of sleep, um, a lot of work-life balance, a lot of uh, personal time, personal relationships. Um, Yeah. Now that I'm in it and I'm fully in it, I totally understand the the grind. I understand that the stress and the the sacrifices that people have to make. It's it's you don't realize it until you're in it, but you end up neglecting yourself. You end up neglecting your family, your friends, those around you, because this is essentially uh, a child that you're trying to keep alive. And no day looks the same. And um, you have payroll to hit. You have overhead. You have to cover. And uh, there's constantly problems thrown your way and there's never the same set of problems. You're, you know, when one problem ends, the other one starts and it's just, that is going to be your new normal for an indefinite period of time. So it's not how for everyone. You, how do you plan uh, to get some of that time back or what do you do to manage the stress in those moments? I have no idea. You know what? I'm still figuring it out. I, I actually, that is 
I think something that I need to learn how to internalize. I'm still very new at this. And so I think that is definitely a, a huge learning opportunity, whether it's disconnecting one day of the week, whether it's um, maybe not prioritizing my work over my personal mental health and uh, health and and just general well-being. I mean, I think that that is something that I definitely uh, need a lot of improvement at. There's so many challenges. You know, there's days that I feel on top of the world and days that I feel like I've hit rock bottom. And I think that is very much the cyclical process of owning a company. If you haven't felt that roller coaster of emotions as an entrepreneur yet, brace yourself because it's probably coming at some point. This is the ride we signed up for. Whether your company is your passion project or a quick way to make a buck, that drive for success makes us crave those highs and should motivate us when we hit a low. Here are the things that Fatima and Janine taught us today. The right relationships can make all the difference in your business. Choose your partners wisely. In many respects, women can have the deck stacked against us in entrepreneurship. I don't know about you, but Janine, Fatima, and I are still going to take our seat at the table and play. You don't have to explain or apologize for your entrepreneurial lifestyle or succumb to the nine-to-five rat race. If running a business works for you, it's your life to lead. Don't be afraid to break down barriers. Somebody has to get there first. If you're into podcasting, make sure to check out Simplecast for podcast hosting and other cool tools. And then see which freelancers you connect with in the Quill Marketplace. Have you tried FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams? Let us show you how you can save time and money and simplify your accounting and finances with FreshBooks. Use our special link that's just for our podcast listeners. It's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Paco Arismendi is our producer and director, and I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. You can connect with me at Demona Hoffman on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and learn more about my dating coaching business at DemonaHoffman.com. Also, don't just connect with me. Network with our whole community of entrepreneurs at our I Make a Living live events. You can go to imakealiving.com to see when we'll be in a city near you. And remember... Your voice matters, so use it because it's your business. I'll see you next week.